morning is a shout of the king is among them. A shout of the king is among them. Actually, this phrase, a shout of the king is among them, is taken from Numbers 23:21. We will look at it later. I would ask you to open your Bibles to Ephesians 5:17. The markets somehow, so you'll be ready to read from them in the midst of the sermon. Ephesians 5:17. If you'll mark it some way, even though we look up many other verses. There is a very striking passage in Ezekiel 33, verses 31 and 32. And God is speaking to Ezekiel and telling him what kind of reception he can expect as he preaches for God to the people of that generation. And they shall come unto thee as the people cometh, and they shall sit before thee as my people, and they shall hear thy words. So here you have, they'll listen, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show forth much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And then this tremendous illustration or figure. And lo, thou art among them as a very lovely song, or as a song of love, it's probably what it would be. As a song of love, of one that hath a pleasant voice, and can play well on an instrument, for they hear thy words, but they do not do them. And so he says, they listen to you, but the way they would listen to a troubadour, the way they would sit and listen, and listen to someone stringing, playing their instrument, going through the village, the village in the city street, singing, they like to hear you sing, Ezekiel, they like to hear your words, but you must understand that they don't have any idea to do them. And this certainly is the way that most people look at religion, and certainly most people look at Christianity. And even Christians can easily fall into this mentality. We can think of it on two levels. We can think of it on a more sophisticated level of somebody like the later Heidegger, uh, where Heidegger says very plainly, uh, that the only thing to do is to listen to the fact that the poet exists. So we can find that there are many people on this higher, sophisticated level in just the position that is pictured by God as he is speaking to Ezekiel. They like the fact that there is some religion in the world. They may even like the fact that some Christianity is in the world. They may even like the fact that some people take the Christianity, including the doctrine of Christianity, seriously because it's like a troubadour, because it gives one hope that there's some meaning in the world. Just exactly what Heidegger would say about the poet. Many people look towards religion and even biblical Christianity, and they think it's the same way. Heidegger would say, there's a poet, so it gives you some hope there's something. These people would feel, I'm glad there's somebody really interested, because it gives me the hope that there is really something. But of course, there is a much less sophisticated attitude than this, and yet one which is uh, about as on every side, not as analyzed as Heidegger would analyze it, or some of these people, even in the university, some psychologist would be glad to do. There's a sophistication in the psychologist who is glad that there is such a thing as Christianity to whom he may send certain cases uh, in the same way that he might send other cases looking for a woman. And you have here, uh, this is a more sophisticated way. But there's a less sophisticated way that is very, very common and universal. 
and that is the people here preaching, people here, the Bible reading, people here, all these Christian teachings, as, as really as poetry, as a song, in the sense that they listen to it with pleasure. Let us say, you all sitting here on this Sunday morning, listening to it with pleasure perhaps, and yet you have no intention, or at least it won't even if you haven't thought about it, you have no intention of it bringing forth any action in your life. So there, is, there are two kinds of, there are two ways in which Ezekiel, the admonition of God to Ezekiel, uh, must be taken into account. The highly sophisticated sense, such as the naturalistic psychologist or a man like Heidegger, and then the more common sense in which we are in danger of coming here, being very glad, and at the same time having no idea of it bringing forth anything except a dichotomy in our lives. We may not say it so. I guess we didn't come in this morning and say, I mean to listen, but not to do. Few people would have done this, but it works this way nevertheless, that in reality we come to a situation uh, where we hear, but we're left with a dichotomy in that it does not bring forth action in our lives. The awful and the horrible part about this is that it isn't only false doctrine that can be listened to this way, and in which with sorrow we all have to acknowledge if we're honest that all too often we too are involved in this. It isn't only false doctrine, but the horrible thing is it can be very, very good doctrine. It can be real Christianity. It can be a true orthodoxy that can be listened to in total dichotomy with no concept of it bringing forth any action in our lives. But let us notice this has nothing to do with the way of God. So as God is speaking to Ezekiel, he is furious at this point. He's really angry that these people will listen to Ezekiel and just listen to it as a song of love through the door going through the village and through the city. And the New Testament, we'll look at some verses in New Testament centering our study in the book of Ephesians, if you open to that place, uh, where God makes very, very plain that he doesn't expect us to come before the word of God, whether in reading or hearing it preached or in study, and merely hear it as a pleasant song. If you open your Bible to Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, and she may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory uh, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us war who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head of all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Isn't that lovely poetry? Isn't that terrific? Don't you get excited hearing those words? Unless it brings forth a result. Unless we take seriously that what he's stating here is not just a song, a song of love, something to soothe or something to merely fill in the gaps. For we must get beyond the poetry stage and understand 
that God doesn't mean us to read this great, these great swelling words, because they are great swelling words. It's as though we're listening to the biggest organ that's ever been made, and they heap up, and they heap up, and the stops come out, and the great 18-foot pipes begin to play, and suddenly the church shakes as you read all this. These are powerful words. But God says, don't just listen to them as powerful words. I mean them to bring forth action in your existential moment-by-moment life. Let's look at this 18th verse. Where he says here, he speaks here, the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You must understand who a saint is, first of all. It's only a Christian. There's no way to be a saint unless you're a Christian. Because the only way to be a saint is to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There is no other way to be a saint. But on the other hand, let us notice in verse 1 that Paul addresses this letter to the saints which are at Ephesus. In other words, all the Christians are saints. So it cuts both ways. On one hand, you can't be a saint. There's no such thing as a humanistic saint. And certainly, Sardis is wrong that Janae is a saint. It doesn't go this way. There's no such thing as a humanistic saint. But there, is, there are those who are saints. Saints because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and therefore in God's sight, as far as forensic things are concerned, judicial things are concerned, their moral guilt is gone, and God can say, I see you clothed in the act of obedience of Christ. I look upon you clothed in the white linen of his righteousness. So we are saints. We are saints. Now when we read the 19th verse, that is, we're saints if, we're, if we cast ourselves on Christ. And the 19th verse, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, Lord, who believe, according to the working of his mighty power? Now you notice here that he's speaking about who believes, so he's talking about the Christian. But notice something else, and this is where it will begin to separate into those who listen to these verses as the sound of the troubadour, and those who listen to these verses understanding something of what it really is supposed to mean. And that is, for those of us who have believed, who have cast ourselves upon Christ, who are Christians, who are saints, then it is perfectly true that Christ, Christ in the first part of the verse, speaks for God speaks forth here, and what is the, his, the exceeding greatness of his, that is the glorified Christ, power to us, according to the working of his mighty power. Don't you understand what God is saying this morning is, this is something very different than merely the song. This is, if you are a Christian, this is what is. God in his mighty power, God in his mighty power in Christ, directs this toward you if you have believed. This is not supposed to be something to merely give us a list, and then we go out, and that's the end. It's, this is to be our mentality. The mentality of a Christian is to be the fact that the resurrected power of Christ, the Christ who has died and raised from the dead, that this power has a practical meaning to us, not just the day we die, and so we don't have to go to hell, but we can go to heaven, but this moment. This is the emphasis that God is speaking here. In verses 19-23, he is speaking then of that which is a practical expression and not a 20th century concept of religious thought. It is not supposed to be religious in the sense of being abstracted from life, 
the way 20th century looks at religion. He's talking about the fact that if you and I individually have accepted Christ as our Savior, and then if we come corporately and stand before him in this case, in this sense of really coming before him as Christians, that the thing that he says here is that which is the actual, practical, present situation. The exceeding greatness of his power to us, Lord, who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, that's right now, this power is to us right now, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly. That's not a religious sentence in the 20th century idea of religion. It's real. It's right now. Where is he? Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Who are these? This is the devil and his forces. These are the fallen angels. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Ever and every name that is named. Not only in this world, not only in the opposition to uh, the reign of Caesar and Nero and all the rest, but in the heavenly, but also in that which is to come. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, not in the whole general structure, but to those who are constitute the church, those who have really accepted Christ as their Savior and are in the church. And then it describes the church. And the church is Christ's body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. When are these things? These things are now. It's the very opposite of a, a 20th century religious statement. It doesn't mean that the battle's finished. You remember that Gillespie, the friend of Samuel Rutherford in dealing with Colossians, points out that the battle still rages, that Christ is mediator uh, over the church at the present time, but he is not mediator, mediator over the whole situation yet in the way that he one day will be. He is God now, but the battle still rages. And so these verses are not saying the battle is finished. If the, these verses were saying there is no battle, then we would come and we would naturally say, this isn't true. So it can only be a religious statement in the bad sense of religion. It can only mean that I sort of, it, it's a trick. But it isn't this way. What he's saying is, no, there's a battle. The battle still rages. And as we're told, for example, the last enemy that is destroyed is, shall be destroyed is death. There are still enemies. But what it's saying is, well, Christ has died. Christ has paid the price, Christ is raised, Christ is even now glorified, and he's greater than the devil, and chance won't take him by surprise. This is what it's saying. It's saying right now, this is the case. Not that there is no battle, but in the midst of the battle, Christ is greater, Christ has died, Christ has been raised, Christ is the Christ of glory. So therefore, let us notice that our blessing now rests upon Christ place now. Christ's place now, as he has been victorious and is in the place of power. But Christ's place now is what it speaks of in verse 21. Far above all principality, power, might, dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That is Christ's place now. Well, then that are the our situation. Our situation, our blessing, rests upon his place now, and his place is far above all principality and power. This is what God says, well, this is who you are, if you're really saints. This should be your mentality. This should be your mentality. 
we should understand that our blessing rests now if we're in the church, because it's for the sake of the church, as it says here in the 22nd verses, the 22nd verse, if we're in the church through accepting Christ as Savior and not just some external thing, if this is case, uh, then our blessing now rests upon where Christ is now and Christ's place now, and Christ's place now is that on the basis of his death and his resurrection, he is far above all principality, etc., etc., etc. This is it. Now, however, the Bible never allows such statements as this to hang in, to hang in midair. It always brings them down into the practical things of life. And so if you open your Bible to the book of Ephesians, everybody, Ephesians 5, we're going to read responsively Ephesians 5:17 through 6, 9. And what we're going to read is a practical portion, a practical portion of what it means in practice if I am in the church and having accepted Christ as Savior, and if Christ really reigns now. So here is where we are. This is a practical result of what should be the case in the light of the fact we are Christians if we are, and the reality of Christ's place of power now. So we'll read responsibly, remaining seated, Ephesians 5:17 through 6, 9. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, and he is Savior of the body. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth, even as the Lord the church. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be, be one flesh. <laughs> Nevertheless, let every one of you, in particular, so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. <laughs> Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. Uh, 
not with eye service as men pleases, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether it be whether he be bond or free. Now, when we read these verses, what we find here then is one expression, one expression of the practice of the result of Christ glorified, and therefore what the situation is supposed to be now in practice for the Christian. So when we read, read in Ephesians 1, we're told something. But then when we come over here into Ephesians 5 and 6, we find that it turns out to be a very practical thing. <clears throat> it is the very opposite from merely hearing the Christian things as a song and going out and living in a dichotomy without action. Here is action. Here is action which results, uh, results from uh, what, where Christ is, what Christ has done, and where we now are in him. Notice in the 17th verse. Wherefore, be not as unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. We're dealing here, here with knowledge, which is parallel back to the first chapter in the 18th verse. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So the first thing is knowledge. The first thing is knowledge. You're supposed to know something. And it says, well, what you're to know is, back in the 17th verse, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, undoubtedly, this bears upon the fact that the individual Christian is to seek the will of the Lord. But this is not a concept in a vacuum. To seek the will of the Lord in our daily lives as a Christian is not in a vacuum, but it is tied here, undoubtedly in this case, specifically in what follows. In other words, it's not just saying that on the having knowledge through the leading of the Lord, but it's saying that speaking of the knowledge of the Lord and seeking the Lord's will, then you must take into account what follows. Because what follows in what we have read responsively is what the will of the Lord is for God's people in our generation. In any generation, but certainly in our generation. What we find here in the 17th verse is a reference uh, to primarily to the verses which follow. These are the will of God for his people now in this present life. It is not just knowledge, and as their knowledge, nor is it a static knowledge. It is to be a knowledge which results in a living reality in the present life as we now rest on our living relationship with Christ who back into the first chapter stands in this place of power and of glory. In other words, this is to be a practical thing internally in our thinking and then out into the external world. Now, what is this practical thing? Well, the 18th verse is really, if, we, if we've never heard it before, it's amazing to find it here. Because it, says, it makes a, it's a, a couplet uh, which stands in an amazing statement. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is riot or excess, but in contrast to being drunk with wine, being filled with the Spirit. Now, back in Ecclesiastes, we have... Uh, we have 
the reaction of Solomon concerning the use of wine in Ecclesiastes 2.3. I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet accounting my heart with, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom to lay hold on folly, uh, till I might see that which was good for the sons of men, which they should do under heaven all the days of their life. And then he goes on and he develops this. And as you find him developing it, what he's saying is, well, I tried out getting drunk to see how that worked under the sun. That in the light, in the light of the fact between, uh, between birth and death, and in the light of the world's problems, I tried getting drunk. That doesn't seem very far away in the 20th century, does it? Because, of course, you can get drunk and seek escape in various things, Wine has been through the ages uh, the, uh, the most common thing of escape, but it isn't the only thing of escape. There are other things of escape. So when we're told here now, be not drunk with wine, it, is, it includes not only actually going out and getting drunk with wine, but he is countering here, one against the other, uh, the anything on the first place, in the first, on the first hand, anything, anything, that we seek as a way of escape. So, of course, immediately in our own generation, we can think of pot and we can think of drugs as well as the alcohol. But, of course, it's something more compulsory eating. Compulsory eating is a way of escape. It's something more. Uh, that is, often sex is a way of escape. It's something more. Even, even compulsory study as a way to go inside and pull in the door after you and just live in a tight little catacomb and not have to face the realities and the action of the world. And this, too, uh, can be a way of escape. The simple fact is it can be the use of classical music can be a way of escape, so that all we do is to turn toward the listening of the classical music, maybe Bach and maybe Handel, as a way of escape. And, of course, no one has to doubt today that listening to rock and folk rock can become a way of escape. So what you have here are two kinds of things that are being dealt with. Things that are sinful in themselves. Things that are sinful in themselves, sex wrongly used. This is that which he says it shouldn't be like this, but he widens it because undoubtedly what's involved here is not only those things that are wrong in themselves, Marley, but those things that are right in themselves if they become our way of escape, if they become our way of going inside and not facing the action, then they're a mistake. So what we have here now is a statement, well, in all these things, all these things, remember that when you do these things, there's a hangover, there's riot, there's excess, and all these things, it is true. It's everything I have mentioned, and you could have a whole lecture on for two hours on things people use for escape. It wouldn't be very hard to work out a long lecture on this sort of thing. But they all have a mark, and that is, at a certain place, you regurgitate. And this is absolute. I don't care what it is. If you drink too much, you have a hang hangover. If you, have, if you have sex in a wrong way, it brings sorrow. Not just in babies being born when you don't want the baby being born, but, but the sorrow of these relationships smashing each other. It doesn't go right. 
you can talk about all these things. Study that becomes a thing like study which is right in itself, and yet, yet if it becomes our way of escape at a sudden place, certain place, we suddenly look up and we have a handful of God. If it's that's all it's ready. It's study, and study, and study, and study. And he says, so God is saying here, don't you understand? All these things lead to excess. They lead to riot. They lead to a, one kind of a hangover or another kind of a hangover. But there is another kind of thing which God doesn't hesitate here to, uh, to parallel with being drunk with wine in which there is no excess, in which there is no riot, and in which there's no hangover. And what's that? Well, he says, this is what it's like. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the Holy, the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, the interesting thing is, the Bible uh, deals with this question of, uh, of a cup flowing over, of drunkenness, in three, different, in three different areas. First of all, drunkenness itself, and the Bible deals a good bit with the fact uh, of, the, of the sin and the folly of drunkenness. Uh, but there is a second thing that God uses this picture for, and that is, he uh, uses it as a picture, and that is the cup being filled up with God's wrath. The cup being filled up with God's wrath, that when, when people, when a culture goes so far, there's nothing left but judgment. And when the cup flows over, judgment. God must because he's holy. That's the second uh, use of the same sort of thing. Drunkenness itself, and then the drunkenness, which leads to God's wrath, not just drunkenness by wine, but man revolting against God, and God using this picture of the cup flowing over uh, for judgment. And then the amazing thing is that the same illustration, in a way, is used here for that which is the exact opposite in what should be the answer for the lot. And that is, uh, that is the fact that it is possible to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now let's notice something here. He isn't saying just save people. Of course, you can't be you can't be indwelt by the Holy Spirit until you have come under the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit does not deal in a defiled temple. You could think of it this way. The Holy Spirit does not deal in a defiled temple. It's important to have come under the blood of Christ and coming under the blood of Christ. Then the Bible says. As soon as we accept Christ as our Savior, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But the Bible, the New Testament, has another note running through it, a contrast to being indwelt by the Spirit, and that is there is something else that the Bible speaks of as being filled with the Spirit. And the Bible makes it very, very plain that being filled with the Spirit is not just in the day when you accepted Christ as your Savior and were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but it is possible to look to the Lord and be filled with the Spirit uh, more than one time. And the great illustration is in the book of Acts, the fourth chapter, the 31st verse, where we're told in that particular place that in the early church's need, and you remember the Holy Spirit has just been given, they've been filled with the Holy Spirit in the second chapter, sometimes a very short time has passed, and now we find this. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So we must understand it's perfectly true, and I perfectly true that when you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and once you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you will never leave the Holy Spirit, you will never lose the Holy Spirit in this era since the death of Christ. But that doesn't say we're always filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Being filled with the Spirit is something else. Being filled with the Spirit is being in that place where indeed we're not only dwelt by the Spirit, but we are under the direction of the Spirit. And we are not grieving the Spirit. Because there is a strong, if you turn back to Ephesians again, in this Ephesians passage where it says, the passage we're reading, filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a strong negative note that has proceeded in the fourth chapter and the thirtieth verse. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. But this is not to be just a, a, a concept. We're to understand the Holy Spirit is a person, and we can grieve him. And the word means just that. The word means we can make the Holy Spirit sad. We can make the Holy Spirit sad. So consequently, we must remember the admonition of Charles Hodge here. And it's nice that Charles Hodge, the great theologian, said this. The great distinction of a true Christian is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. How careful should he be, lest anything in his thoughts or feelings would be offensive to this divine gift. The thing which marks the Christian is that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And if we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he is the Holy Spirit, how careful must we be, says Charles Hodge, the theologian, that our thoughts and our feelings, it's interesting, you know what Hodge does here? He doesn't say our actions, he brings it inside, because that's undoubtedly where it's really the struggle is. He brings it inside, the factor that anything of our thoughts and feelings must not be, uh, must not be, must not grieve, uh, offensive to the divine gift. So if you're going to be talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit, you must understand that your, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings have something to do with whether we're filled with the Holy Spirit or not. We cannot expect to have the real filling of the Holy Spirit and be in this situation, which then follows, if we are doing those things deliberately and constantly and not asking forgiveness, which would grieve him, the divine gift. So if you begin to talk about being filled with the Spirit, it begins with a negative, and that is, let's ask God's forgiveness for grieving this divine gift. Now, however, being filled with the Spirit is again not just a religious sentence in the 20th century idea, because you will know and notice in your Bible, the sentence is a very long sentence. So now we want to go down through the very long sentence. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In my Bible, there's a semicolon. That doesn't matter whether it's a semicolon or whatever it is, but anyway, it's one sentence. And then, as a result, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody uh, in your heart to the Lord. So it says, now you can have some real singing. Now you can have some real singing. One of the things that marks drunkenness is singing. Drunken singing. Here, stand in the cities at night and hear drunken singing. But there's, here's a different kind of singing. This is a singing that doesn't bring hangover. It is a singing which can be real singing. It's not just this other thing, the drunken singing with cloudy mind and with the hangovers and all that falls. It can be real joy. Notice that what he's talking about here is not a trip. He is not talking about a trip. He is not saying, never mind the content, just feel. It is the very contrast to this. He has already talked about a strong doctrinal thing. He has already talked about knowledge of God and content. 
So he isn't talking just seeking experience no matter what, without content, with or without drugs, with or without psychedelic health. What he's talking about here is knowledge, but being able to have a real joy in the framework of a total content. Now also we have to carry it back to Ezekiel and see the contrast to Ezekiel. And that is that we aren't to think of the religious things, as I stressed at the beginning of this message, just as a dichotomy of poetry, with no relationship to truth on one side, I've already just spoken of that, or on the other side, no relationship to action. We have this expression today, to be where the action is. Well, a Christian ought to be where the action is. As a matter of fact, you ought to be able to read it the other way. If these things are real with us, then wherever we are, the action ought to be. We shouldn't have to go out to look for the action. Wherever we move along through life, around the Christian, there ought to be a circle of action. It isn't just listening to Ezekiel saying, and say, Ezekiel, isn't that nice? Ezekiel, you've really got your instrument tuned beautifully today. The fingering's terrific. That isn't it. To the real Christian who understands, who hasn't grieved the Holy Spirit, who is filled with the Spirit, and none of us will ever be perfect. We're always marred. But even a small proportional concept of letting God have his way in our lives, to this person, you watch them. As they walk through life, the action's there. You think about it for a moment. Think about the people who really, who really have, in even a poor, poor, poor way, given themselves into God's hands. When they go someplace, something happens. This isn't a case of drumming it up uh, through salesmanship. It isn't just shouldn't be this way. It isn't just being clever and using. Uh, using, as we were speaking last night, on the problems of the, of the new use of cinema and so forth, uh, a cool communication. It isn't this kind of thing. It's if you are really giving yourself to God, if you are in this situation, if you are not grieving the Holy Spirit, if you are in God's hand, in your own way, and you mustn't try to copy somebody else's way, but in your own way, there'll be action there. There'll be action. What kind of action? What kind of action? Well, the Bible in other places talks about evangelism, but that is the kind of action, interestingly enough, is talked about here. The first thing we're told is this, and that is we're going to have some joy in our hearts. Speaking to or among yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, in your heart to the Lord, singing to yourself, I'm not sure which this is, whether you're singing to yourselves or singing among yourselves. It doesn't make any difference. Actually. What there is is to be joy here. The first action is to be some kind of joy. The very opposite uh, of, the, uh, of the kind of drunkenness, escape, that simply brings the hangover. It's a very different thing. So what kind of action? Well, if you watch the Christian, the first kind of action ought to be some kind of real joy. A real joy. You can't, this is something that isn't meant to be worked up. And everybody won't be the same. And everybody won't express it the same way. And our own psychology, our own psychological makeup comes into account. Uh, the, way the, the way the Italian will show his joy might be different from the way the Swede shows his joy. There will be a difference. 
But the point is, nevertheless, in reality, if there is, if there's this reality there, this is the first motion that is spoken of here. There should be a real joy. The second thing you will notice in the 20th verse, giving thanks always for all things uh, unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the sentence isn't finished. The sentence we began back in the 17th or in the uh, 18th verse, and be not drunk with wine, the sentence is still unwinding. So after this, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, comes giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the next thing. All things. Christ is glorified. Christ is greater than Satan. And we have the agency of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So here we have the two factors. We have the glorified Christ, greater than Satan, and we have the agency of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. Now, so we find then, he says, well, giving thanks. Now I bring it to numbers, because I think this is really a very, a very strong statement of exactly where the, what the Christian should be. And in the book of Numbers, in the 23rd chapter, I'm just going to read a little bit. You don't have to look it up if you wish. But in Numbers 23:21, we have Balaam speaking about Israel. And this is what he says. He looks down over Israel. There they are. Who are these people? Well, they're struggling up out of Egypt. They're coming along. They've been wandering in the desert. What marks them? And Balaam says the thing that marks them is this. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of the king is among them. When you looked at these people with all their failings, they were marked by something. There was a shout of the king, of a king, among them. What is the Christian to be like? What is the Christian community to be like? What is the Christian mission to be like? What is the Christian church to be like? Well, the thing which should mark the Christian, the thing which should mark the corporate witness, is that when people look at it, though it won't ever be very perfect, yet when they look at it, there should be something different because suddenly they should understand whether they can analyze it or not that really there's a shadow of a camera. He has died, as we've seen in, in Ephesians 1. He has died. He is glorified. The victory is won. And when God, when God's people move through this world, there should be a shout of a king among them. And one aspect of the shout of the king is the joy. Another shout, and the shout, and it's related to this, is a giving of thanks for all things. So as we move through the world, we should understand we have a king. We have a king who's greater than the devil. We have a king who's over, over whom chance is not king. We have a king who really is victorious. This is who we are. So we can read in the book of Romans in 8.28. In the book of Romans in 8.28, where Paul speaks, and we find Paul saying there uh, that all things, all things work together for good. But you have to read the, careful, read the verse very carefully. Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good. That isn't what the verse says. And we know that all things work together for good to a, to a certain group of people, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. It's the church to whom all things work together for good. Not in a fatalistic way. It is not that all things happen to work for good to the Christian, 
But it is rather that the God who is the actor in the history and who does act in the history will work all things for good to the Christian. You will notice in the book of Romans it is to, to those who love God and called according to his purpose. In the book of Ephesians, you remember, in the first chapter, in the 22nd verse, it was exactly the same. And that is, Christ is head over all things to the church. And then you remember Gillespie's little note. There's coming a day in the future when the victory is really going to be won. But at this particular time, Christ really has overcome. He has beaten the devil there on the cross. He is glorified. He is greater than the devil. Chance is not behind him. Yet the battle still rages. But in the midst of the battle, you can be sure of this, and that is God, the acting God, will work all things, if you are a Christian, for your good. All things for your good. It doesn't mean that there isn't pain, there isn't sorrow, it doesn't mean there aren't tears, it doesn't mean there's no battle. There is a battle. None of this would be meaningful if it's couched in the terms of, a, of merely a, a fatalistic concept. It isn't a fatalistic concept. It isn't that all things happen to work together for good, but God, on the basis of this tremendous victory of Christ, will work all things together for the Christian's good. Now, it's important to see, then, that a part of the thing where the action will be is that you will see a group of people thanking God for the life which surrounds them, the very opposite of the 20th century mentality that is nauseated with life. Sick of life, hating life, nihilistic toward life, nauseated beyond all words concerning life. The group of Christians ought to be seen as a people in which there's a shout of the king in the sense, in the sense that they, in, instead of rejecting life, they live life. They live life. So when some of you young people say, trouble Christians, they're kind of half dead. Really, you're making a spiritual statement, a spiritual judgment, if you're right. Maybe you're being cruel, maybe you're not being right. Maybe you're not being right. But if you find a Christian where there isn't this kind of action of an affirmation toward life in thanksgiving, you are not looking at a Christian that has the shout of the king um, with him in the way that the Christian ought to have in this present world. So we would find, for example, in Romans uh, in Romans 1.21, we are reminded very strongly there in Romans 1.21 that the beginning of all our trouble is when we stop giving thanks. And so this was the way the whole, the whole confusion starts in the first place. How did England, how did America, how did Holland, how did the Reformation countries get in the mess they're in? Well, you can be sure of this. The first step in the mess they got in was because God's people stopped giving thanks. The first blow was not the coming of, of the heterodoxy. The first blow was that God people, God's people no longer had a shout of the king among them. They were no longer a thanksgiving people. And after this, the doors are open and along comes the flood. So we read in 121 of Romans that this is the way the whole thing begins. Because that when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were thankful. This is the word. So when God's people simmer down into this thing which is less than living, they are not those in which one can see an affirmation to life, even up to the level of, turning back now to Ephesians, uh, even up to the level uh, of, as it says here, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the thing isn't where it should be. The shout of the king among them has quieted, and it isn't where it ought to be. And that's true whether it's those of us who are individually Christian or whether it's something uh, as we are together. Now, however, we're not done yet because the sentence, Paul's sentences can be very, very long, you know. And this sentence is still going on. It started back there in the 18th verse uh, of Ephesians 5, and it said, And be not drunk with wine, etc., etc., etc. But the last of the sentence is, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So the shout of a king is to be shown in the human relationships of life. Submitting yourself one to another. And then he goes through and he exegetes this in, in three couplets. Wives and husbands, children and parents, servants and masters. And this encompasses life. And so he's saying, if there's really a shout of a king among you, the place it ought to show up eventually, after we've gone down through these other steps, the place it should show up is in the common human relationship. This is where the shout of the king ought to be found. This is where it ought to be. It isn't to be just a rather meaningless saying thank you and singing without it resulting in the practical place. And so it ought to be, so it ought to be, let me repeat, the Christian and the Christian community ought to be a place where there is action in other ways and expressly um, in the human relationships. Wives are to submit themselves to the husbands, but very, 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 very carefully then, God balances this with the fact that husbands are to love their wives up to the high level of the way in which Christ loved the church. Children are to obey their parents, but fathers are to be very careful not to provoke their children to wrath. But in contrast to, bring, to the wrath, provoking them to wrath, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That means something more than teaching them the catechism. It means that we are to consciously not put our hands on our children to such an extent and crush them so that they come to hate the whole thing. But rather, in contrast to this, they're to be brought up in the fear and nature of the Lord, and as they begin to grow, they are to come to the place of having accepted Christ as a Savior, learning something of spiritual reality, and suddenly they are now in themselves to be those wherein is there is the shout of the king. The Christian father's job is not just to break his child. That's not the Christian answer, though there's to be discipline. He is to insist that the boy, the girl, remember they're to obey the parents. But nevertheless, the end is to be kept in mind. The end is a good human relationship between them so that at a certain age, suddenly the boy, the girl, has a shout of the king in themselves before the world. And the father and the mother and the daughter and the son can stand looking at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ in which now the family has a shout of the king in the midst of a broken world. The same thing goes on with servants and masters. You will notice with the servants that we are to be obedient to our masters according to the flesh. You know what that means? It means it doesn't matter whether they're Christians or not. That's what it means. You aren't to be just obedient to your master, your, your, your employer, if, if he is a Christian. You are to do it as unto God. One of the things that kills me about this generation. They don't know anything about responsibility, and they know little about work. They can sit and let society carry them and care not one rap. But 
this is because they've died and our society has let them die and there's no reason to take responsibility. The Bible doesn't have this kind of a situation. The Bible has a situation in which you are to do something honest for your daily bread. There is to be an honest day's work for an honest wage. But of course, this then isn't, doesn't become a capitalistic banner to beat the workers because immediately the other side is said with total finality and master, you be careful. You be careful. And the reason the master is to be careful is for a very sober reason, and that is your master also is in heaven, and there is no respect, respect to persons to him. Masters, the, house, the housewoman who hires a maid doesn't have a special little badge on her that says, look how great I am when she gets to God. God is going to judge each person for their place. And so we have three tremendous couplets here that encompasses all the human relationships. The husband, the wife, the parent, the child, the master, or the servant and the master. And there's to be a balance. And in these human relationships, mind you now, not in church on Sunday morning, sing the doxology like mad. That isn't what it's saying. It's saying in the human relationship, there is to be the shout of the king. This is what the Church of Christ is to be. It is interesting, it is interesting that there is one other place in the Bible, in the book Paul's writing, where you have exactly the same relationship. I'll move quickly, but if you open and follow, in the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians, the third chapter in the 16th verse, if you hold your finger in Ephesians 5, and at the same time look at Colossians, because I find it a very remarkable parallelism, which shows that the Holy Spirit is directing Paul in a very careful way uh, concerning the church and their attitude. So in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now hold the place and turn back to Ephesians 5, and if you'll look down quickly over 18 to 19, you'll find an exact parallel. An exact parallel. Now turn back to Colossians 3.17. And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Now turn back carefully again to Ephesians 5.20. It's exact parallel. The order is exactly the same. Slightly different wording, but the order is the same. And then, if you will notice, in Colossians 3.18 through 21, and the parallel is brought to fruition. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husband, as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye servants as well-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God, and in four one. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal. Talk about social justice. Just and equal. Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You have a master in heaven. So the intriguing thing is at this particular place, that the, you have an exact parallel between Colossians 3, an exact parallel, step by step, nothing out of order between this and the Ephesians passage. Now then, as we come to a conclude, let us notice, therefore, where is the shout of the king to be? The shout of the king isn't supposed to be just in the church service. 
The shout of the king isn't just to be in some sort of an emotional overwhelming once in a while, though emotional overwhelmings are good into the praise of God if they're from God. But there's something far more, and that is, it's not to be the shout of the king, it's to be in the, in the structure of life. But notice something, it's not a humanism. It's not a humanism. I was reading a hippie paper the other day uh, from San Francisco, somebody sent me, and their big slogan is, uh, have faith in your brother. Oh, no, have faith in man. That's it, have faith in man. And I just held my head. Have faith in man. This is not the Christian position. The Christian position is that you're to honor man because you know who he is. He's made in the image of God. But your faith is not in man. Your faith in order to have good human relationship is the very contrary of being merely in man. The Bible doesn't say that just because you're a Christian, however, that automatically you can live this way. There's something beyond that. It's being the Christian, but it's understanding not to grieve the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. And then we can begin to live this way. And that's an existential thing. It's not once for all. It's letting the Lord have my life this minute. And it can't be done any other way. Existentialism is wrong as a philosophy, but it's right in the concept of the motion of time. We only live one moment at a time, and there isn't any other way to live. And what matters at this particular moment is whether at this moment I am giving myself to the Lord and whether, therefore, not grieving the Holy Spirit, I can know some reality of being filled with the Spirit. It'll never be perfect in this life. But it must be something that is more than merely natural man having faith in man working out relationships. This is something that's being referred to here in the Scripture is something that is beyond natural man. And then let me say it's also beyond the carnal Christian. Now, none of us are perfect. But there's a difference between not being perfect and deliberately going on, sometimes for weeks and sometimes for years, deliberately living in a dichotomy, listening to Ezekiel play his harp, as it were, and saying, that's not. But living in a total dichotomy. There's something more than the natural man. But there is also something more than the Christian who merely reads his Bible and who comes and listens to the church service and does all these other things, and he only hears it as a song. There's something more. But once there is the morning, then there should be first the joy, then the thanksgiving in the midst of the things of daily things of life. And then after that, there comes the reality of the shout of a king in our human relationship. And it's this order, and it cannot be reversed. It cannot begin with the humanism and come out right. It must begin at the other end. It must begin with the fact Christ has died, the work is finished. Who is this Christ? He is the glorified Christ. Are you in relationship to him? Yes, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. Yes, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But what about now? Are you grieving him, or are, is your life in, your, in his hands? If it is, then you will find where you are, the action is. And what is the action? It's joy. It's singing with joy, without a hangover, without going outside the tavern and losing your lunch afterwards. This is it. But it's more. It's a real thanksgiving in the midst of the battle of life. It's more. People will see in our human relationship something that's real. And people will look and say there's something. And God will say, do you know what it is? Do you know what makes the difference? There's a shout of a king among this people, and that's it.